We continue our series in Genesis on the life of Abraham today, and we're looking at the rest of Genesis chapter 21. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 7, and we read about how Abraham and Sarah were finally blessed with the son that God had promised them in their old age. And we saw that they were abundantly thankful for God's gracious gift and how Isaac was further evidence that God keeps all of his promises. But when something good like that happens, it doesn't immediately erase all of the hard stuff that came before. God's blessings come to us in the midst of sin and struggles. Forgiveness comes to people who have sinned who have been sinned against, and who will continue to struggle with sin. And so in the rest of chapter 21, we see how the Lord is helping Abraham in the mess of his life. He's righting some of his wrongs and given opportunity to trust God in circumstances that are certainly less than ideal. So we're opening to Genesis 21 this week. You can find the sermon text Print it out in your bulletin, or you're welcome to use your own Bibles, the Pew Bibles, or your Bible app. Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 8, going through the end of the chapter, and we hear two accounts from the life of Abraham. Let's hear the Word of God this morning. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac." And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold fast, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, 
the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. We thank you that you tell us what we need to know. And though sometimes it seems confusing why we have particular stories in Scripture, we thank you, O God, that... All of Scripture is useful and profitable for training us in righteousness. It is good for correcting and building us up. So, Lord, I pray that you would use me today, in spite of my sin and the mess of my life, to faithfully proclaim your word, to clearly expound it and apply it for us, and that you would give us ears to hear your word, that your word might go forth through the power of the Holy Spirit and answer to our prayers and change our hearts and minds. And work in us as you have promised to do through your life-giving word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our story today from chapter 21 really is broken down into two. We have the story of Hagar and Ishmael and Abraham and Sarah. And then we have the story of Abraham and Abimelech and the commander of his army. And there are similarities there. There's a well. We talk about Beersheba in both places. But what we really see here are two wrongs that Abraham tries to make right. And so we're going to look at these two wrongs that Abraham makes right. And then we're going to ask two questions because it's kind of confusing what's going on here. Essentially, what is God doing and what does it matter? So first, two wrongs. And the first of the wrongs that Abraham writes deals with Hagar and Ishmael. As a quick refresher, if you've not been around or simply forget things on occasion, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was unable to have children for many years. And having waited a decade for God to keep his promise to give them a child, Sarah offered this young maidservant of hers named Hagar. And she could be a kind of surrogate a second wife to give Abraham a son. Well, Hagar did conceive and did bear a son whom Abraham named Ishmael. 
But Hagar's ability to have a child made Sarah jealous. And so the household was filled with tension. Fast forward about 16 years and we arrive at chapter 21, verse 8. And there is a party, a big old feast to celebrate that Isaac was weaned. He's no longer a little baby. He's a little boy running around eating delicious food. And this was a big feast in Isaac's honor. But problem comes in in verse 9. Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. (gasps) Laughing. A teenager. Laughing. Who would ever think of such a horrible thing? He seems kind of innocent, right? But as we talked about last week in the beginning of chapter 21, that Hebrew word for laughter there is almost always negative laughter, a kind of mocking laughter. And you're like, oh, that sounds more like a teenager now. Yeah, that right there. Laughing with the arrogance of youth that this kid, and they're way too cool for this baby's party. So instead of celebrating this child that God supernaturally provided, Ishmael disdains this child, probably sensing that he's being replaced as daddy's favorite. Ishmael was not wrong about that. God had told Abraham that Isaac would be the one who inherits the covenant blessings and promises. It was not going to be Ishmael. And so what we see in this passage is these family dynamics between Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael. These awkward, tense family dynamics would have been unavoidable. That eventually something like this was going to happen. And it just so happened at the weaning party. And Sarah tells Abraham, all right, I'm done. We're fixing this now. Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. We can understand why Sarah feels that way. Abraham, though, these are both his sons. It's not her son or her son. They're, They're my sons. And so this understandably displeases Abraham. He cares for both of his sons. He cares for Ishmael. Sarah knows how much he cares for Ishmael, and so Sarah wants to remove any possibility that Ishmael is going to encroach on Isaac's position as heir. And so she says, get him out of here. The Lord comes to Abraham in his concern and says, listen to Sarah. You do need to tell them to go. Isaac is the heir, not Ishmael. Don't worry. I will bless Ishmael. He will become a great nation. I will take care of him. But you need to stick with Isaac. Now, Abraham can fundamentally know all of this stuff. He can literally be told it all by God, but it's still going to hurt. Sending Ishmael away is an admission of his wrong. It's the embodiment of an error from 16 years earlier when he didn't trust God's timing. By sending Ishmael away, he was essentially saying, the way I tried is wrong, and I now must fully commit to God's way and His promise. He was saying, 
I need to trust God no matter how messy it is and how much it hurts. And you have to imagine it hurts. I mean, look at how he sent them away. Abraham could not send Hagar and Ishmael away with anything, really. Because all of his flocks, his herds, his servants, his possessions, while they belonged to Abraham, they were Isaac's as heir. To give Ishmael any of it would be to give him a kind of inheritance. And so he sends them away with next to nothing trusting that God will keep His Word to bless Ishmael and make him into a great nation. How that's going to happen, Abraham doesn't know. He may not find out. All he can do when confronted with this past mistake is to obey God's commands and trust that God will keep His promises. And so he tries to right this wrong about Hagar and Ishmael. Then he does it again in the second passage. The second wrong that he has to make right is with Abimelech. Back in chapter 20, Abraham was sojourning in the land of Gerar, where Abimelech is king. And while he was there, he did this old ruse he and Sarah worked up, where he called Sarah his sister instead of his wife. And Abimelech took Sarah, thinking it was the sister, not a wife, and so he took Sarah as his own wife. God then spoke to Abimelech and was like, hey buddy, that is his wife. And so he gave Sarah back and he called Abraham out on his deception, confronting him like, why'd you lie to me, man? I almost committed adultery with your wife. What are you doing? And so here we are in chapter 21, and you have to imagine that Abraham is not super excited to run into Abimelech again. I imagine that every time Abraham saw Abimelech, he looked kind of like your dog looks when He had just gotten in the garbage and eaten trash. He's got that really sheepish, like, I know you're going to yell at me now. Look, that's how Abraham looks when he meets Abimelech. We try to avoid being around people who have caught us in our sin. We don't like being reminded of our past mistakes. But Abraham doesn't really have a choice here because Abimelech shows up and he is not alone. He is here with the commander of his army, which, you know, doesn't seem great. Right off the bat, when someone shows up with the commander of their army by by their side. And so here's what he says. God is with you, Abraham, in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me. Wonder where he got that idea. Or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. There is so much in just what he says right there. Abimelech can see God has blessed Abraham. I mean, you can see it right there. He has a 90-something-year-old wife with a newborn. Something supernatural is going on here. And Abimelech's like, sign me up for whatever's going on with you. He has even been sojourning in the land. Abimelech's been like, yeah, you can stick around these parts. That's fine. But there's also like... This distrust of Abraham. You've deceived me once. And I'm not going to be deceived again. And so he's asking for a formal promise, a formal oath that you will not deceive me again. And so Abimelech is kind of mad, but he also recognizes like, I got to be on this guy's side because God's with him. And so that's what's being proposed here. 
And so Abraham's kind of getting this backhanded compliment, like, I really don't like you, but you're my only shot at getting blessed by God. And so how's Abraham going to respond to such an awkward backhanded compliment? Well, Abraham knows he was wrong. He knows his reputation has been damaged. And so he swallows his pride, and he swears to be honest with Abimelech. In fact, he gets to start with a really awkward bit of honesty, saying, hey, um, I dug this well that your servants wrongfully seized. And Abimelech says, oh, I didn't know about that. And so now the very first thing we have is a situation where it's your word versus my word. Abimelech didn't know, but Abraham says it's so. Now what are we going to do here? Well, Abraham recognizes that he has been the untrustworthy one. And so he gives Abimelech these seven ewe lambs as a gesture of his honesty. Abraham knows Abimelech cannot trust him. And rather than get upset about it, he tries to make it right with this gift. Abraham humbly accepts that his integrity has been lacking. And he strives to be honest going forward, trusting the Lord will protect him in whatever mess he finds himself in. So he's trying to right the wrong he had done in that relationship. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these two stories together, I am not 100% sure what's going on here. Or at least why any of this is here. Like, I can understand what is happening. But of all the stories of stuff that happened in Abraham's life, why did God choose to include these two here in the Bible? What are we supposed to do with these stories? Well, when faced with such a question of like, okay, I don't know, the best thing we can do when looking at the Bible is ask, what's God up to? The Bible is ultimately about God. So what is God up to in these stories? Well, it's the same thing as last week. God's keeping his word. He's just keeping that word every day, all day, no matter what. Last week, he kept his word, even though it seemed impossible. He gave Sarah, who was 90, a child, and she gave birth. This week, he is keeping his word in all of this mess. It's been bad. It's been rough. There is so much awkwardness. But guess what? None of that stops God from keeping his word. I want to look at three quick ways God just keeps his word in the midst of this mess. First, God had promised in chapter 17, hey, Isaac, he's the son of the promise. He's the one. And God keeps that word. In that messy family situation, I'm sure Abraham was thinking like, okay, Isaac's the child of promise, but Ishmael's here. Like, what are we going to do? Well, you know what? God figured it out. He sent Ishmael and Hagar away, and he solidified Isaac in that family. We are good. God kept his word. This is the heir, not this other guy. The second thing we see is God keeps his word to bless Ishmael. Abraham sent Ishmael and Hagar away with nothing, with skins of water and a little bit of bread. We don't know how far they made it before that ran out, but it seemed really, really bad. But then God hears them. He's like, hey, there's a well over here. And they're cool. He sustains them. Isaac grows up, learns how to use the bow really well, finds a wife. And we are told in verse 20 that God was with 
the boy. Abraham had no idea how God was going to keep his word in that mess. God had it under control. And then the third way God keeps his promise, we see the promise from chapter 12 where God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. Well, here comes Abimelech. And he may not have been super happy about it, and he may not have had the purest of motives, but Abimelech walks up and is like, you can stay in my land, but you've got to be honest with me. And Abimelech is blessed. Abraham gives him this livestock, and Abraham is blessed. He has someone who he's an ally with. He has a place to roam and sojourn. He has this well at Beersheba. That was a messy relationship. And yet, God blessed those who blessed Abraham. He kept that word. It didn't matter what kind of awkward situation they were in. It didn't matter the relational dynamics. It didn't matter the weird baggage in history. God kept his word. So that's what God's up to. But then we're left with our second question. What does this possibly have to do with us? We don't have a lot of wells. We may have a well. But like, we're not thinking about this well out here. We're not running around with a skin of water or whatever. This is a very different world from our world. I don't know if we have a child situation like this Hagar-ish male child thing. We're probably not new parents of newborns in our 90s. Like, what's going on here? How can we understand this? Well, we live in a messy world too. Life is not the way it's supposed to be, and I bet most of our lives are complicated. In fact, I bet if you look at the mess that is in your life, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it may be attributable to you. It may be your mess. That it's often our sin that has made this mess in our life. And that's got to be true of everyone, because Jesus only saves sinners. And I'm guessing most sinners have messes from their sins. And so we find ourselves trying to follow Jesus in a messy life. Now, I want to take a quick moment to say that when I'm talking about messes, I'm not talking about forgiveness. As Sarah said, God forgives our sins in Jesus. He's not going to hold those sins against us, but forgiveness does not immediately clean up the mess of our sin. So just imagine for a moment that today, before church, you just yelled at someone in your family with cruel words. And you come to church and you say your prayer of confession. You're like, God, I was really mean this morning. Please forgive me. God forgives you. You're assured of that forgiveness. But guess what? You still get to go home to that person you yelled at and to whoever else heard you yell at that person. That's still a mess, even though you're forgiven. And so even though we are forgiven, we still have messes and we have to follow God in the messy situations of our lives. And so I want us to consider two kinds of messes that relate to our story today that we might struggle to live through. The first example of a kind of mess we have is the mess of our good works. Our good works? Why are our good works a mess? Like, why would we want to clean up or cast out our good works? Well, because our good works can keep us far from God. The Bible tells us that we cannot be saved by our good works. But we all think we're good, at least a little good. 
And we're quite fond of thinking ourselves as good people. So what are we supposed to do with this goodness that we like about ourselves? Well, our New Testament reading from Galatians 4, Paul uses the story of Ishmael and Isaac to tell us to cast out those good works as Abraham cast out Ishmael. That we need to trust only in God's promise and not in our good works. It makes me think a little bit about uh, my shoes that I recently demoted to yard shoes. That a few years ago, they were my nice sneakers. And I loved to wear them and I was proud of them. They were really cool and I like didn't want to get them messy. And I was wearing them yesterday out on the hillside and they are literally covered in burrs. They're in my garage. I can't get the burrs off. The sho- I can't even touch the shoelaces. They're just covered. They're dirty. Years ago, I would have never thought of them that way. But now they are just work shoes that I am not proud of. That's what we need to do with our good works. We demote our good works from what we are proud of and what we love to wear when we think good of ourselves, and we cast them out. They are demoted to a different understanding that, yes, we should keep doing good works. You need work shoes. But they are not what we are proud of and how we view ourselves. We don't think of our good works as what saves us and what makes us right with God. And sometimes we need to clean out our good works and move them somewhere else in our mind so that we are able to trust God's promise better. So that's the first way that we can deal with a mess in our lives. Sometimes the mess is good stuff in our lives. The second example of a mess we deal with is perhaps a little more understandable, and that's dealing with the people that we have wronged. Though we have all been sinned against, we have also all sinned against others. And I bet if we just stopped right now and took a minute, we could all think of at least a handful of people that you'd be nervous about meeting today because of something you said to them or something you did to them. That there are some people that if they approached us like Abimelech approached Abraham, we'd be like, oh boy. Because of something we did. It could be awkward. Abraham intentionally lied to Abimelech that it happened. And now he's still relating to him and it's Awkward. That relationship may never be the same. So what do we do with these kinds of messes? Well, we see in Abraham, he does his best to be faithful. No matter what others are going to think, because he knows God has already given his opinion of him. We are the same way in Christ. God knows we are sinners, but he loves us as his children. And because we are secure as his adopted children, we don't have to be held captive by what others think of us. Notice that Abraham does not completely cave when approached by Abimelech in order to win back his approval. He doesn't just swallow this issue of the well that's rightfully his and like, well, he should have that because I've done wrong and just doing whatever he can to just, I need to placate, placate, placate. Abraham pledges to be faithful, to do what is right, to rebuild his trust, however long that takes. You see, we often have to be around people we have sinned against. We live with them, we work with them, and we cannot avoid them forever. And it hurts us when people don't like us. We like to be liked. 
And it can be hard for us to go through life when we have messes like this, but we're able to go through it knowing God is on our side. When we have security in the most important relationship, because no matter what other people think of you, people can be fickle. People can be unfaithful. God is not. And when He says His love is for us is forever, when we are adopted as His children, He means it. That He is the everlasting God who shows us everlasting love. And Abraham recognizes this. At the end of the chapter, we see him plant a tree by his well at Beersheba. Why does he plant a tree? Well, as one pastor has said, you do not plant trees on someone else's land. You plant trees on your own land. And Abraham worships God in this little spot of land where God had given him this well, and now he has this tree. And he is there worshiping God with the son that God has given him. The heir of covenant promises is there with him. He is worshiping the God who has been faithful, giving him the son, the land, and the blessing of others around him, even though his life has been a mess. Now, granted, it doesn't seem like much. I'm guessing the acreage was kind of small. But Abraham has what he needs in that spot. The sustenance of the well, the shelter from the heat and the shade of the tree. And though he is still a sojourner, he is a sojourner with a sliver of what God has promised him. Is that not where we are right now too? That we are sojourners on this earth, holding on to the foretastes of God's everlasting kingdom as we gather each week to worship God together. We drink deeply from the well of His Word. We take shelter under the tree of the cross, recognizing that God always keeps His promises to us, no matter how messy our lives may seem. Let's give thanks and pray to God. Lord, we pray that You would help us to hold on to Your promises, to trust that even in the messes that we live through, You are going to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to trust You, to follow You, to lean on You and obey Your Word, and to know that what You give to us in Christ is of far more value than anything we can have in this fleeting world. And so God, give us eyes for the kingdom to come, knowing that You have promised us that we will be with You an everlasting God forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name, Amen.